You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on Christ through the ages. Now looking at Matthew. Jesus was Jewish. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Whereas the Gospel of Mark is concerned with power, politics, empire, one sort of legitimacy, Matthew is more focused on religious culture, heritage, or legitimacy, especially the fact that Christ is Jewish and he is another Moses. He's a teacher like Moses. So each of the four Gospels has distinct emphases. Matthew is the Gospel for the Jews. It's a very Jewish emphasis. Christ is the Jewish Messiah. He's a lawgiver like Moses. We find the Old Testament is constantly being fulfilled, uh, often with a fulfillment formula, you know, as it is written. In fact, you'll find something like that 11 times in Matthew. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He teaches. He gives the impression of a new Moses. In fact, the teaching materials in Matthew's gospel is arranged into five teaching tracks. One of the great things about ancient biography, Bios, is that the form of the writing is quite flexible. Things can be arranged and rearranged. Chronology is not quite as strict. So Jesus' teaching is put into five uh, tracks, and in between each of those tracks, we, we find miracles and other things. But what else is arranged in five tracts? The Torah, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. And if you've read Psalms carefully, you see it's arranged into five books. In fact, they're actually called Book 1, Book 2, 3, 4, and 5. So the teaching of Jesus is being presented in one sense. It's like Moses is teaching, uh, which traditionally, not, not that I think Moses wrote Genesis, but, but traditionally the five books, the Pentateuch is ascribed to Moses. But here we have Jesus teaching, in a sense, mirroring that. But also, because it's imitating the Torah and Psalms, his teaching is being presented as scripture. This would make one think right away of uh, the Hebrew Bible. And, of course, the ultimate message is that through the Jews, the Gentiles will be reached from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 28. Uh, various themes are sustained. So what I want to do is look at a few of these passages uh, before I summarize, and I hope that we'll learn uh, some helpful things here. And I'm going to begin in one one. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Without even reading the genealogy, and I think that's a very interesting study, especially with the four or five women of scandal who appear in the genealogy. Uh, fascinating genealogy. But just focus on verse 1. Jesus is descended from David. That means he's a candidate to be Christ, to be the Messiah. And David, we're reminded, is the son of Abraham. Of course, that's not to say that, you know, well, I thought Isaac was a son of Abraham, but son in the Jewish sense, as a descendant of. So Jesus is descended from Abraham. But if we're going to be children of Abraham, we need to be with Jesus. And more specifically, he's descended of Abraham and of David. That has significance. He's born in chapter 2 in Bethlehem in Judea. Well, that's where David was born. That's David's birth town. If I continue, he was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod. And that's when uh, Magi, Magi, 
from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, who's the king of the Jews? Well, Herod, in one sense, uh, has a delegated kingship, but he's more of a puppet. Everyone knows that it's the, the, the emperor in Rome who's in charge uh, through his uh, representative in, uh, in Caesarea. And in this case, we have a political king, but who are the, these wise men coming to worship? They're coming to worship Jesus. So now we've got more than just his being a Messiah, but his being worthy of worship. That's amazing. I'm just going to share a few things from Matthew's gospel. We see in chapter 4, Jesus is led into the desert to be tempted. There's a clear uh, parallel here to Israel being led into the desert through the hand of Moses to be tempted. Of course, the difference is whereas Israel fails its uh, tests, its temptations, Jesus passes. And there are many parallels uh, which are definitely worth pursuing. But let's look in chapter 5. 5 to 7, we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to them, and he began to teach them. So here we have Jesus portrayed as a rabbi. Right? Rabbis teach in the seated position. He has disciples. But also, it says he went up on a mountainside and taught. And this would make the reader, the Jewish reader, think of Moses. Moses goes up on Sinai to get God's law. Sinai, which is also called Horeb. But Moses gets that on the mountain. Even after the tablets are destroyed, he goes back and gets them again. The mountain is the place where God meets man and gives him the message. We have the Beatitudes. And then Jesus says some amazing things after telling us the kind of people we should be. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, verse 17. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know what that means? Well, one thing it means is that the Old Testament is still our Bible. Though it may not be our, our law, it's still scripture for us. And we need to understand how it's fulfilled in Christ. We don't just want to ignore it and blow it off. We want to understand it. He came to fulfill it. So how does Jesus fulfill the law? What does that mean? He upholds the law. If you break at least these commandments, you're in trouble. I tell you, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's setting himself up as a higher authority, as of a higher authority than the most respected Pharisees, the most respected interpreters of law. We often think, well, the Pharisees, you know, people probably laughed at them, made fun of them. I don't think so. No, I mean, I know they did at some point. But the Pharisees overall, the 6,000 or so Pharisees throughout Israel, enjoyed tremendous respect. But here's Jesus, and they were popular. Jesus setting himself up above them. And then we have this series of contrasts, uh, many antitheses, which are, are revolutionary. 21, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And we see this pattern going throughout Matthew 5. You've heard this, but I tell you this. He talks about anger. He talks about uh, going to court. He talks about adultery and divorce and taking oaths and revenge. And he talks about enemies. And in each case, he says, in effect, certain things were allowed, promoted, condoned, tolerated. 
in line with the old covenant. But I tell you, it's changing now. Things that were formerly permitted are no longer permitted. I call you to a higher standard of righteousness. I think that's what he means by uh, our righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees. How will it exceed that of the Pharisees? By internalizing the spirit of Christ in the new covenant as seen in these various qualities. Our attitude towards our enemies, the way we look at our word, you know, how, how our word is our bond, uh, the way we look at marriage, the way we look at, uh, well, the way we deal with ourselves when we're angry and so forth. So that's what it means. But what he's saying is, I have the authority to update things. You know, the, the Pharisees may allow certain, uh, certain practices. They may teach certain things. But I have the authority to overturn that, to revise it. And then he talks about the essence of righteousness in chapter 6, particularly as seen uh, in giving to the needy and prayer and fasting. And it's radical stuff. And he continues throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches and his words have a shock effect. I mean, people are just amazed. Uh, 728. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I don't think he's just saying their teachers of the law lacked conviction or their teachers of the law uh, were you know, only partly representing God. I think it's more than that. He taught with authority and he taught with a greater authority because he claimed to be representing God himself. Because normally, if you ever read the kinds of things the ancient rabbis wrote, It'll say, well, Rabbi Eliezer said this, and then Gamaliel said that, and it's also been said by Isaac, you know, this and that. that. You know, they tend to quote each other. Jesus doesn't quote anyone else. In fact, in a way, he doesn't just quote the Old Testament. He even says, well, the Old Testament says this, but I tell you this. In other words, he presents himself as being on a much higher level than their teachers, than their rabbis. So once again, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, uh, this uh, major teaching tract, which most Christians historically have considered to contain the essence of of, uh, Jesus's message. Now, there's so many other passages we can look at. uh, 1023, when you're persecuted, one place flee to another. I tell you the truth, you won't finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I think he's talking here about judgment on Israel, which happened about four decades later. And notice, you won't be finished going through the cities of Israel. He expected his apostles to preach to the Jews. It's very much a Jewish gospel. He portrays himself in chapter 12 as Lord of the Sabbath. And there are many other passages we could look at. But I want to uh, go to the very end of Matthew's gospel. Again, it's presented to win over those from a Jewish background, those who would appreciate Jesus fulfilling uh, the scriptures and fulfilling the expectations for the Messiah, the true son of David. You could say, well, is it really just for the Jews? It's more than that. Well, doesn't he give the woman a hard time in chapter 15? You know, remember remember that passage even, you know, the, well, the dogs get the crumbs and, okay, for such an answer, that's fine. You know, your son will, will live. Jesus is flexible, and but however you interpret chapter 15, he's not saying it's only for the Jews, because if he were, it would contradict the Great Commission. So let's read this passage, 16, 28, 16 to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, 
to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Okay, just pause. Mountain. Once again, we're reminded that Jesus speaks authoritatively on the mountain, like Moses. When they saw him, they worshipped him. That ties back in with the chapter 2 and the, the wise men from the east coming to worship him because he's king of the Jews. But some doubted. The Bible's so honest, isn't it? It's so honest. Some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That takes us back to chapter 5, doesn't it? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Pause again. We hear the word nation and we think nations. Right. Canada, United States, Mexico. Okay. Algeria, Morocco, Chad, Tunisia, you know, all nations. North Korea, South Korea, Japan. But that's a fairly modern way of looking at it. You could even say the nation in that sense didn't even exist in the first century. The word nations, uh, ethne in the Greek New Testament, is the Gentiles. It's the pagans. It's the peoples, the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. So the commission is to go and make disciples of all peoples everywhere, not just those who are ethnically Jewish, but everyone. What will unify them? What will bring them all together? They're being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus, again, uh, is more than just a teacher. He has all authority. In fact, he's connected with the triune God, the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I'm surely with you always to the very end of the age. These are are wonderful uh, words, life-giving words, And as we skim through the entire Gospel of Matthew, we see that he is the one who fulfills Scripture. He is the Messiah. He's the true son of Abraham, the embodiment of living by faith. He's the true son of David. And while he is a rabbi, he's so much higher, so much greater than a rabbi. He claims that his authority is that of God himself. And in this Gospel, perhaps more than any of the others, we see that Jesus was Jewish. This gospel appeals to those from such a background. And I predict that the better you understand the Old Testament, the more intrigued you'll be by Matthew. In the early church, the church in the first few centuries, historically, Matthew was always the favorite gospel, the one that was most quoted. Not too surprising, considering how many of the original leaders uh, were reached uh, in Judaism in in the first years, and the fact that the Gentile Christians saw themselves as being grafted into something much greater than themselves, the historical religion of Abraham. So, in our first lesson from the Gospels, we saw Mark, Lord Caesar or Lord Jesus. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Matthew, Jesus was Jewish. And the next lesson, we'll have Luke, a universal vision from the center to the margins. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's series on Christ Through the Ages. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry.